Today's gospel reading comes from the book of John, chapter 18, verses 1 through 18, and 25 through 27. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Who do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost no one, not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door, and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, "'You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you?' He said, "'I am not.'" Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Nicely done. What seems like some of the most important events in all of the Bible happen in a garden, don't they? I mean, at the very beginning of the Bible, if you're familiar at all with it, you know that, that all things were, were made and they were good and God put Adam and Eve in a garden and in that garden they walked with him in the cool of the day and there was nothing that was hidden and there was no shame and there was no guilt and they were literally and figuratively um, naked before him and before um, one another. But we also know in a garden is where everything fell apart. 
And in a garden is where man said to God, um, not your way, but my way. Not your will, but my will be done. And we know that from that point on, everything broke. Um, That the effects of that are felt in every minute of your day. But this morning, we also, in this passage, we re-enter a garden. And we re-enter this garden with Jesus, and it's in this garden. It's, It's no mistake that the climax of the Gospel of John, where Jesus is denied, and he's betrayed, and he is arrested, and he ultimately hands himself over to be killed, is in a garden. It's no mistake that it's in that same garden that we watch man once again stumble and fall. And man say to God, not your will, but my will be done. And it's here where we see this this other man, this second Adam, quietly and willfully and obediently hand himself over. The scene, the very same scene where man rebels is the same scene where Jesus in the flesh comes to stand in man's place. He comes to stand in our place. We think about this this morning. Let me, let me pray for us first. Father, would you help us this morning? Help us to see the beauty that is here. Help us to see the comfort that is here. Help us to see the humility of our Savior Jesus. We may have heard this story a thousand times before. But Father, I pray that you would wake us up to see it this morning with new eyes. Father, I pray that what we would find here is we would find a Savior that is so willing to take on weakness for the sake of people who are utterly weak, that it would move us and it would change us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A few weeks ago, I was sitting and talking with a man who had literally lost pretty much everything. He had, um, while he was incarcerated, he came out of a prison and he found that his wife had um, basically moved in with another man. She had left him. And his response was, I don't really blame her. Um, he, was, he didn't have a cent to his name, he, but for most of his life he had been incredibly wealthy. He had really never lacked for anything. He had owned cars and houses, um, but at this point there was, he had nothing left. His kids really were mad at him. They wouldn't really talk to him anymore. Um, He no longer had a place to live. He no longer had a home. And quite literally, he was at the end of his rope. He was looking in the face of the accumulation of all of his failure. And he said to me, he said, I've got nothing. I've destroyed everything. The people who have loved me the most are the ones that I have hurt the most. I've been addicted my whole life, mainly to drugs, but he was like, over what really I've been addicted to is power and money and control. I've, been, I've never been brought so low in my life. And he looked up at me and he said, I've heard that Jesus can make all things new. He said, I've heard that a few times in the last few days, that Jesus can make all things new. Do you think that he can make me new? And then he prayed, and he prayed this. He prayed, Jesus, thank you for wrecking my life. 
Jesus, thank you for wrecking my life. Thank you for taking everything away from me so that you could find me. Jesus, thank you for wrecking my life so that you could save me. Have you ever woken up one morning and the day before you had done something that you thought you would never do and you woke up the next morning and you thought, you know, that's not really who I am. That's not really what I'm about. I'm better than that. Have you ever said something and even as you were saying it, as it was coming out of your mouth, you thought, I swore that I would never say that. I swore that those words would never come out of my mouth. Have you ever done something and you thought, I cannot believe I'm doing that? Have you ever made a promise and then broken it and thought, I swore up and down I wouldn't break that promise? You know, I sit with a lot of young couples um, who are, over the course of the last 15 years, who are getting married and um, in premarital counseling, and it's one of the things, I mean, that we say is that basically when we talk some about, like, divorce, some of them, most of them say, like, that's not a word in our vocabulary. We, you don't understand how much we love each other. And it's hard for me not to sit there and say, every person who's ever been divorced has said the same thing. Even if you haven't been there, even if you don't relate to what I'm saying, what Peter shows us this morning is that there is a button in every single one of us. There is a button in every single one of us, and maybe that button just hasn't been pressed hard enough yet. But what if having that button pressed is not the worst thing that ever happened to you? What if your worst day and your worst failure... And your worst mistake, and the time when you saw yourself truly for what you are, is actually the best thing that ever happened to you? What if having your weakness revealed isn't the end of your life? What if it's actually the beginning of your life? Let me ask you another question. Have you ever been frustrated with what seems like and what feels like this silence and the indifference of God? Have you ever, you know, looked at something in your own life that's really difficult and really hard and maybe really tragic, and you looked at God and you thought, it seems to me that this would be a great time for you to step in and do something. And I don't know where you are. I don't see you. I don't feel you. I don't know that you're at work. There's no evidence that you're at work. Or you ever look at the world, I mean, I mean, the things that I just prayed for in our prayer, and you look at the world and you go, this would be a great time for you to show up. You see, from my point of view, it seems like things are really messed up and really broken, and it seems like you're being quiet. It seems like you're being silent. Why don't you step up and do something about it? I don't know anyone who hasn't asked those questions. Maybe we're too embarrassed to admit that we have, but everyone has thought God is silent when he shouldn't be silent. And you know what? In the Bible, the Bible is full of those questions. The Bible welcomes those questions. You know, I was, I was thinking about this in uh, the little book, the little prophet Habakkuk. You ever read Habakkuk? And he starts off, he starts off his whole book. It's basically an argument with God, and his opening is, Oh Lord, how long will I cry for help, and you not hear? How long will I cry out, violence, and you will not save. 
All of the gospel writers record Jesus' arrest, and they record Peter's denial. But John's is different. John is kind of different in every way. John, as I said over and over again, is the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is what he called himself. He desperately wants you to know this Jesus. Come and see this Jesus with me, is what he's saying, so that you might believe and in believing in him, that you might have life in his name. But John, as he records this this morning, as you heard Adair read to us, it's a lot more stark. There aren't the details that some of the other gospels um, provide for us. There's no, there's no kiss by Judas. There's no sleeping disciples. There's no weeping in the garden. Um, there's no prayer of Jesus to his father. There's no Jesus taking the ear of Malchus and putting it back on his head and reattaching it. Instead, we have Jesus handing himself over, pitted against Peter denying Jesus. And I I think that we have the weakness of Peter and the weakness of Jesus. I think that that's what John really wants us to see, because I think those are the questions that we're most asking, what do I do with the silence of God? What do I do with what seems like the indifference of God? And then what do I do with my failure? What do I do with my weakness? Those are questions that we ask, and John wants us to think about them this morning. He wants us to see that there's answers to those questions in this passage. And so I want to just look at both of those characters in this passage. I want to look at the weakness of Peter, and I want to look at the weakness of Jesus. And I want to, I want to start with Peter. There's a lot Um, going on here in this passage. There's a band of soldiers that is coming to arrest Jesus, a band of soldiers. How many is that? Some writers that I read say that could be as many as 200. I never really thought about that before. You think about 200 men with torches and lanterns and weapons who storm into this garden in order to arrest Jesus. And the Pharisee, there's some of the Pharisees that are there. There's some of the chief priests that are there, and they're led by Judas. And this is Judas's moment of ultimate shame and betrayal. And yet John doesn't seem that interested in drawing our attention to any of those figures. Instead, John just zooms in on Peter over and over again. He zooms in on Peter. And maybe it's because what's happening to Peter's heart is so similar to what happens to all of our hearts. Maybe the danger for us is not um, picking up weapons and lanterns and storming against Jesus. Maybe the danger for us isn't outright betrayal. Maybe the temptation for us is simply to overestimate our own strength while denying the one we claim to love. I think this is why every gospel writer records Peter's denial. Because when Peter is beside Jesus, when he's by Jesus' side, I mean, he is bold, right? I mean, he is bold, he is courageous, he is outspoken, he's dramatic. He's somebody that I would like to hang around, just quite frankly. He probably thinks to some degree that he knows how this night is going to go. He probably thinks that this is going to end in a fight. And I'm standing with one who might be the king, the next king of Israel, the the long-awaited Messiah, And if this ends in a fight, I know who's going to win because I've watched him raise people from the dead. 
And so Peter resorts to violence. Peter takes matters into his own hands, and he thinks, surely this is the way out. He's the same Peter who just moments ago, maybe a couple of hours ago, proclaimed, no, no, I will die for you, Jesus. And at the moment, like, Peter believed it. I mean, with all of his heart, we have no reason to doubt that what Peter said at that moment is the way that he actually felt. He thinks he knows himself pretty well. He has a pretty high estimation of his loyalty. But then Jesus is arrested. And all of that shattered. And the disciples have begun to scatter just moments after Jesus, as we looked at last week, prays this beautiful prayer to the Father on their behalf that he would protect them from the evil one, that he would guard them. And everyone begins to scatter away from Jesus. And they have to have the million questions running through their head. How could he possibly allow himself to be arrested? Have the last three years of our lives, have the sacrifices that we've made, have they all been for nothing? But maybe the the biggest question running from their mind is sort of, how do we get out of here, right? This doesn't look good. And the disciples scatter, but Peter doesn't run away. He follows behind Jesus, and it's there in a courtyard of the high priest that Peter comes face to face with who, who he really is. It wasn't this band of soldiers, armed, who he was ready to take on. It wasn't wasn't them that undid him. It was a simple simple servant girl. A young girl just simply asked him a question, and when she asked him this question, she pushes the button that he didn't know he had, and this courageous, sword-wielding man crumbles. What if having your button pushed isn't the worst thing that ever happened to you? What if it's actually the best thing that ever happened to you? For Peter, it was here at this moment. He comes face to face, which he hadn't yet. He comes face to face with his need, with his weakness, with his frailty. He comes face to face with who he actually is. Mark tells us and Luke tells us as well, at this point he broke down and he wept bitterly. We are all so weak. We are all so weak. Every single last one of us, we are all so weak. And how comforting an account this must have been uh, to the early church when they read about this. And I think this is why all the gospel writers record it, because Peter was a giant in the early church. Peter was the one who who preached at Pentecost and 3,000 people repented and were baptized. Peter was this giant figure, but Peter was not a giant in the early church because he was so wise or he was so bold or he was so passionate or he was so courageous. Peter was a giant in the early church because he had been humbled to the dust. He had been totally broken by the grace of Jesus. Have you broke down... And have you wept bitterly because you've come face to face with yourself? Have you broke down and wept because what you saw in yourself is something that no matter how hard you try, you cannot change and you hate it? Have you seen that you're unable to in any way remedy the situation or fix yourself? You know, it's not until we come to that point that we begin to comprehend 
the deep, deep love of Jesus in what it is. Otherwise, we play this game. We use religion, we use the church, we use one another to make ourselves look better, to try a little harder, to just clean up a little bit of the outside. This is what Jesus was so harsh about to the religion in his day. He was so harsh towards the Pharisees that you clean the outside of this cup, but it's filthy inside. You haven't seen yourself yet. Have you come to the point where you've seen yourself for who you really are? It's not until we come to that point that we can comprehend what Jesus has come to do. It's not until that point that we can finally begin to trust him with our lives. And, I mean, we'll go on and talk about it later, but, I mean, Peter from this point, was humbled to the dust so that he began to trust Jesus with his life. It totally wrecked him, and it totally changed him. What about the weakness of Jesus? It's almost a funny phrase to even say, because this weakness is very different than the weakness of Peter, because at the beginning of this section, you get a glimpse of the power of Jesus. I don't know if you caught it or not, but you get, a, you get this glimpse of who Jesus is at the beginning when they come to arrest him, and it makes, his, it makes his voluntary weakness that much more astounding. When they come with their weapons and their torches and their lanterns and their chief priest and their Pharisees and all the important people come to arrest Jesus, he says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. And he responds, I am he. The he's there for our benefit. Jesus says to them, I am. I am. And there's that little sentence afterwards that it's kind of strange that when Jesus says, I am, it says all of them draw back and they fall to the ground. Why do they do that? Because they probably think lightning is about to strike him because what he just said is blasphemous. You remember when Moses was standing in front of the burning bush and he's talking with with Yahweh, with God, and he says, all right, I'm going to go back into Egypt, but who do I tell them sent me? And God says to them, he says to Moses, "Tell, tell them I am sent you. I am who I am. There is nothing else that defines me. I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the end. All things were created by me and for me and through me. And even this moment, what Jesus is saying when he says, I am, he's saying, even this moment falls under my control. Even this arrest falls under my control. They knew what he was saying. Maybe Peter thought this was the key word, right? Maybe Peter thought they all fell to the ground because Jesus just said, I am God. And so Peter says, this go time, he draws his sword, it's time to fight. But instead, Jesus does nothing. In fact, he tells Peter to put his sword back up because he needs to drink this cup that the Father is giving him to drink. And Peter doesn't understand that. He doesn't know what that means. I'm sure he just thinks, why aren't you doing anything? Are you really going to let it end this way? Are you really going to let them just simply arrest you? It's a fair question. It's a question that we ask. Jesus, why don't you stop this? Why don't you stop this disease? Why don't you stop this tragedy? 
Why don't you stop this heartache? When Peter, what Peter didn't understand was that the plan of the Father was for the Son to embrace the way of weakness so that the Son could stand in the place of those who were weak. And he didn't understand that. He didn't understand that God was up to something that he could not begin to fathom. John doesn't record it here, but in the other Gospels, you hear this prayer of Jesus right before his arrest that is raw with emotion that Jesus says to the Father, Father, take this cup from me three times. And the Father says, no, and he says, your will be done. Not my will. In the garden, the second Adam says, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. What Peter could not have known then is that Jesus willfully and obediently hands himself over, though he could have called down fire from heaven. The Father doesn't answer this request to take away the cup because this cup represents his love for you. God is up to something that Peter didn't understand and Peter couldn't realize. And Peter, maybe a few minutes later, as he heard the rooster crow, Maybe it began to dawn on him what Jesus was all about. John Newton says that God rules and manages all things, but in so secret a way that most people think he does nothing when in reality he does all. God rules and manages all things, but in so secret a way that most people think he does nothing when in reality he does all. God, why are you silent? Is it possible that God is up to something that we don't understand? I mean, that's something this passage is revealing to us, right? Because the people in the moment, we can go back and read it with hindsight, and we know what Jesus is doing. But those who were living in the moment, who had spent all of their waking hours with Jesus, who had followed him, who had adored him, who had sat under his teaching, who had watched him perform miracles, they didn't know what was going on. And is it possible that even now in your life that God is up to something that you don't understand? Is it possible that even though everything might look bleak to you, might look lost to you, might look tragic to you, that God is up to something good because he actually loves you? When we look at Jesus taking on weakness for ones like Peter and ones like us, what we know is that Jesus can be trusted. Because Jesus was going to the cross. And we would be fools not to trust him. We would be fools not to trust him. In his strength, Jesus becomes weak for weak people. He doesn't need Peter's passion. He doesn't need Peter's courage. He doesn't need Peter's sword. He doesn't need Peter's defense. He needs Peter to see his need of him. That's what he needs. And that's what he needs from us this morning. Maybe he's breaking you this morning. Maybe he's brought something into your life and you're saying, why are you silent in the face of my worst failure? He's not. He wants you to see your need of him. He wants you to see, this is exactly why I came. But first, you have to come face to face with yourself. You have to see why you need me. Being humbled was part of Peter's training. He wasn't ready to follow Jesus until until this moment. And what that means for us this morning, it means a lot of things, but I'll end with this. What that means for us is that you can bring your failures to Jesus. You can bring your failures to Jesus. 
The point of church is not what maybe you were taught growing up. It wasn't that you um, are ready for church when you're ready to bring your best to Jesus. You come to Jesus with your failures. You come to Jesus with your sin. You come to Jesus with all of your misery because that is exactly the reason he reentered that garden. So that Jesus could say what none of us could say, that that Jesus could say at every minute, not my will, but your will be done on behalf of these people And then as next week we'll see, Jesus doesn't go and ascend a throne. He ascends a cross. Friends, this morning, grace and peace, you are are worthy because you are loved. You are not loved because you are worthy. You are worthy this morning because you are are loved and you have been loved if you're sitting here this morning and you're Christ you've been loved from before the foundation of the world you are not loved because you are worthy you are worthy because you were loved I heard someone say this week and I'll end with this they said imagine imagine yourself and we can all easily picture this situation imagine you're sitting in sort of that awash with guilt and shame because you've fallen again to some temptation, something that you've sworn that you would never do again. And imagine at that moment that Jesus walks into the room. He said all the difference is made in what expression you think is on his face. What expression is on Jesus' face this morning? As he sees you, as he looks at you, as he looks at me. As we see where he's going in this gospel, I think the expression that is on his face is one of deep love. Deep love for people just like us. Let me pray. Father, we thank you once again. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that um, he was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we thank you that your word is true and your word doesn't clean things up, um, that your word leaves this denial of Peter for us to read and for us to even be comforted by because we are all deniers. We've all said that we love him and yet our lives have not reflected that. We've all denied him by what we've done. And Father, we thank you that Jesus came to seek and to save this morning, those who are lost. I pray if there are those who are lost here this morning that they may be found, that they may know and see that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing in him, that they might have life in his name. It's in his name I pray. Amen.